Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Good morning, Inspire family. So glad that you have joined us for another Church at Home experience. Um, This is incredible. For those of you who don't know, we actually um, have our leaders here uh, in person, and it is great to have you guys. I love you so much. Uh, If you are joining us for the first time and you don't know who I am, my name is Roger. I'm the executive pastor here at Inspire Church, and we are in the middle of a series called Exiled. This is the way, and we're actually in the book of Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Now, last week we read Daniel chapter 7, which was Daniel's first vision that he received. And now we're in chapter 8. Now, for us, it was just the flip of a page, but for Daniel, two years have passed from chapter 7 to chapter 8. Um, And what's interesting about chapter 8 is that not only is it a new chapter, not only has two years passed, but actually the language it was written in has changed. See, from chapter 2 of Daniel all the way up to now, it was written in Aramaic. But now Daniel is reverting back to Hebrew. And some scholars debate on why that is, but what we do know is that the text that we are going to read today um, is a vision, a picture of a biblical prophet, Daniel, um, who is carried by, uh, away by this vision 200 miles from Babylon. And there he is taken into what is future for Daniel. He is being shown, he is privy to things that are not known yet. But what's interesting about this vision is that it's not just a vision, it is a night terror. And this night terror has the potential to completely change your life. Let's join Gerald now as he reads Daniel chapter eight. During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one that had already appeared to me. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. As I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of its way, to the west, to the north, and to the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and became very great. While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly it didn't even touch the ground. This goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed towards the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. The goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both his horns. Now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. 
The goat became very powerful, but at the height of its power, his large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Then, from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east and towards the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion. So the daily sacrifice was halted and the truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything it did. Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, How long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and heaven's armies be trampled on? The other replied, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the temple will be made right again. As I, Daniel, was trying to understand the meaning of this vision, someone who looked like a man stood in front of me, and I heard a human voice calling out from the Ulai River, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of his vision. As Gabriel approached the place where I was standing, I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. Son of man, he said, you must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. While he was speaking, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground. But Gabriel roused me with a touch and helped me to my feet. Then he said, I am here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. The two-horned ram represents the king of Medea and Persia. The shaggy male represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between the eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn shows that the Greek Empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. At the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate holy people. He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. The vision about the 2,300 evenings and mornings is true, but none of these things will happen for a long time. So keep this vision a secret. Then I, Daniel, was overwhelmed and lay sick for several days. Afterward, I got up and performed my duties for the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. Thank you, Gerald, for reading Daniel chapter 8. Today, I have titled this message, A Dangerous Hope. A Dangerous Hope hope. There's some debate about this vision because what some theologians are saying is that when this chapter uses the phrase time of the end, 
that as of the 20th century, that most uh, people in church have been preconditioned to immediately interpret this as sort of the absolute end times, not just a certain uh, end time for a certain uh, time in history, but the absolute end times. However, there are many theologians and scholars that say that actually, uh, when you look at the context, that what it's referring to when it says the end of times is just simply sometime much later than Daniel's life, but not the consummation, the final consummation of all things. And one reason they say is because, you know, when the angels are talking and they're asking, well, when is the temple sacrifice is going to come, you know, back again? And, and a certain number is given, 2,300. And they said, well, obviously, when Jesus died on the cross, he died once and for all, and temple sacrifices aren't needed after that. So this is definitely sometime in Daniel's future, but what some scholars say, but part of this vision is to our future and part of it is to our past. Well, listen, what I want to do this morning is something that I learned in art class. When I was in art class and I was doing a painting, what would happen is I'd have the canvas in front of me and I'd get up close and I'd start to paint and I'd 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 paint. And eventually the art teacher came up to me and said, Roger, listen, every once in a while, as you're painting your portrait, you need to take a step back and so that way you can see the big picture. So that way you can see, okay, what needs to go here and what goes here and what maybe is a little off or where do I need to add? Because if I'm too close too much of the time, then actually when I'm all done, I'll miss the big picture of what it is that I'm trying to paint. And, and what I want to do in, with, with Daniel 8 is uh, I want us to take a step back for a minute. I, I want us to maybe stop analyzing the brush strokes up close and see what is the big picture that God has painted on the canvas of Daniel's life for us to see. We okay with that? And so what do we see? Well, what we see is a frightening vision where he sees all of these horrors, right? And even though uh, they aren't meant to be taken literally in the sense of, you know, there won't be a literal goat that comes and charges at a literal, literal ram, that this is imagery. But even though it's imagery, it's still describing something very real. It's like when I say that person stabbed me in the back or she broke my heart. Well, you're not going to find a knife in my back or if you x-ray my chest, you're not going to see my heart broken in pieces. It's imagery, but nonetheless, it's describing a very real experience, right? It's still describing truth. It's not like if you didn't see the knife or if you didn't see my heart in an x-ray shattered you'd say, oh, Roger lied. No, no, no. You, you understand the imagery that that's being portrayed. And, and in this night terror that Daniel sees, he's having this, he, he's seeing that these, this conversation is going on, right? Uh, between, you know, these beings, the, these angels of some kind. And, and then all of a sudden, can you imagine the guy, the guy in the vision says this, he says, uh, hey, Gabriel, why don't you go over there and explain to Daniel the vision that he sees? Can you imagine that happening to you? Right? This night terror. 
You say, Pastor Roger, why do you keep calling it a night terror? Well, 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 look at what it says. I mean, verse 17, Daniel says that he became so terrified when Gabriel came up to him that he fell on his face. You, you see that? Yeah. And, and then in verse 27, um, after the vision is over, it, 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 it actually made him physically sick, physically ill and, and for several days. This was a vivid vision. So real. But out of everything we read in this chapter, the thing that is most intriguing to me, the thing that catches my eye the most, the thing that is most perplexing actually isn't what's in the vision. It's not actually what Daniel sees in the vision that perplexes me, but it's what Daniel does after the vision that is so interesting. Look at verse 27 again. This is after the vision, and, and Daniel says this, Then I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for several days. Afterwards, so trauma, he, he experienced some sort of trauma, and afterwards, he said, I got up, and, and look at this, he said, And then I performed my duties for the king. Wow. See that? Yeah. After that, after everything, I performed my duties for the king. What? So, so after he grappled, after he wrestled with the fact that this is actually going to happen, that this is real, after he came to the realization that he believes this and this is fact for him, after all of that, he got back up and he went to work. He got back up and performed his duties. He went back and did his everyday duty. How, how is that possible? Well, it's only possible with one word. Hope. Hope hope. Like a single star in the vast darkness, like a glimmer of light at the end of a tunnel, comes these five words in verse 25. Notice what it says, and it's talking about this evil ruler, and he says this, he will be a master of deception, and he will come and become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle. But, here's the five words, but he will be broken. A glimmer of hope in a storm of chaos. And so what we see here in Daniel is that it's not just the why you are waiting for the second coming of Christ. That's important. But what we see here in Daniel is it's the how. How we wait is important. So, so I'm going to quickly just show you where we're going in this message. And, and there's three things that I just kind of want to bring to your attention and that we're going to talk about this morning. So you can go ahead and write these down if you're a note taker. Number one, how are we waiting for hope? Number two, what hope are we waiting for? And number three, why is it dangerous? Number one, how are we waiting for hope? Number two, what hope are we waiting for? And three, why is it dangerous? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are giving us this book to navigate through. And Heavenly Father, we praise you, God, because you are infinite, you are wise. Lord God, your grace knows no bounds. Your love knows no limits, Heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord. 
And now I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will illuminate this text like a sunbeam through fog. And Lord God, that what is cloudy, you will make clear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. How are we waiting for hope? See, to the degree that you actually believe in this hope, it's to the degree that you will experience joy and peace even in the midst of darkness. In other words, how you wait matters. Because how you wait in some ways shows what you're waiting on. You see that? In other words, if my kids were in a car, and I love being able to have kids because they just, you just have all these sort of, you know, sermon illustrations. You know, that's why you keep them around. They just have, and so if I were to put my kids in a car and I were to say, and they were waiting for me in the car to go to the doctors to get a shot, how they would wait would be very different than if they were waiting in the car for us to go to Disneyland. Right? Yeah. How they would wait would be different. I guarantee you. And, and, and so oftentimes how you wait is a reflection of what it is you're waiting on. And there's all kinds of waiting. Right? Romantically waiting for the sunset while you are next to your sweetheart on a picnic blanket. Right? Think about it. Or maybe waiting for the rounds of chemotherapy to be done. Waiting to see if you actually got accepted into that university. Waiting for your food to be ready. Waiting for your test results to come back. Waiting for your baby to be born. Waiting to see if this date is the one. Waiting for your loved one to pass away while you hold their hand. There are all kinds of waiting. So the question is, well then, how... Do you wait for Jesus? You can write that down. How do you wait for Jesus? And the Bible says this in all sorts of different places, but I quickly just want to take you to Matthew 24. And and verses 1 through 35, what Jesus does there is he gives us a whole lot of instructions regarding his return. Now, those verses, everyone knows, are very condensed and how you put them together is disputed and the the main lines of thought can, you know, sort of be grasped. But, But nevertheless, we all recognize that they have to do with the return that Jesus, that will happen in the end of time when Jesus returns a second time. And so that's Matthew chapter 24, 1 through 35. But then... In verse 36, all the way to the end of 25. So for the rest of 24, all the way to 25, you're you're no longer dealing directly with the content of his return, but with the instruction on how to wait for his return. So you have a half a chapter given to the return of Christ, and then you have a chapter and a half given on instructions on how to wait for that return. In other words, in Matthew, Jesus is recorded to teaching more about how to wait for his return than his return himself. So for example, Jesus says, my my coming will be like a thief in the night, right? When you don't expect it. Or or, or in verse 40, he says uh, this, two men will be working together in a field and one will be taken and the other will be left. And two women will be grinding flour in a mill and all of a sudden one will be taken and the other left. 
Now in that, don't notice what is different. Notice what's the same. Whether you're taken or you're left, what's the same is both people are working. Both people are working. They're just doing what they do every day, right? One's ready for Christ's coming and the other one, one is not, but they're both caring about, about their business, just like Daniel did. In other words, it's not like they came to this realization that Christ is coming again, and, and, and so because of that, they stopped everything, right? They stopped having careers, or they stopped their education, or they stopped having families, or, or, or whatever. And it's not like they, they stopped and they secluded themselves away and, and, didn't, and, and stopped being part of society. That's not what happened. It wasn't like that cult, uh, the People's Temple, right? You guys remember that with Jim Jones? Maybe some of you watched the Netflix documentary where, where basically they went away to sort of create their own utopia um, and it ended tragically. Rather, what we see these men and women doing in this parable is the same thing we see Daniel doing. And in the rest of chapter 4, through Matthew chapter 25, sorry, 24, through Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives us more parables, each picking up something from the previous parable, but also showing another nuance on how to wait for Jesus. So for instance, one of the parables is Jesus is saying, well, look, there's this master and, and, and he's going away. And so he tells this slave, he says, listen, I'm going to leave you in control of everything. Now, Jesus is not promoting slavery, just like before he wasn't promoting thievery when he says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. No, no, no. What he's doing is he's using cultural references to bring about an understanding of supernatural realities. But anyway, so what happens is uh, the master leaves, and, and so this person thinks, oh my goodness, you know, he's going to be gone for a long time. And so eventually he starts doing what he wants. And, 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 and all of a sudden the master comes back when he doesn't expect it. But this guy has partied, this guy has done all sorts of things with the master's stuff, and the master comes back and he doesn't expe expect him to. He treats people like he wanted to, and then the master shows up. He was mean to people. He, he only used people for his benefit. And then all of a sudden the master shows up. So Jesus, in other words, Jesus could come at any moment. Right? It's, his return can be imminent. And yet, the next parable is about the ten virgins. And in the parable of the ten virgins, it also lets us know that his second coming can be far off. So the nearness of Christ's return and the farness of Christ's return is not an either or, but a both and. Which actually causes us to act differently, doesn't it? Because the imminence or the proximity of Christ's return, his nearness, the nearness of Christ's return, causes us to have personal integrity and missional urgency. Right? Right? The, 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 the nearness of Christ's return, I'll say it again, thank you, babe. The nearness of Christ's return causes us to have personal intimacy, but missional urgency. Yeah. 
But the farness of Christ's return, the futureness of Christ's return, causes us to think generationally and institutionally, right? Like, how are we going to pass this gospel message down to the next generation? And, and what's the church going to look like 20 years from now and 50 years from now and so on? But the one parable I really want to show you tonight is the parable of the bags of gold. The parable of the bags of gold. You say, well, well don't you mean of the talents? Well, I know that's how it's translated, but actually the, the Greek word there is teleton, which is why the NIV later versions translate it into bags of gold, and, and that's because a teleton is actually a weight of money, a weight of money. And so these are bags of gold. And so in this parable, what ends up happening is, is that, uh, you know, the, the master comes and, and he gives out bags of gold, to his servants. To one he gave one bag, to another he gave two bags, and to another he gave five. And he says, I'll be back. And immediately, the one that was given five bags of gold gets to work right away and starts doing stuff with it. And so does the one with two bags of gold. But the one that was given one bag of gold goes and buries it. He digs a hole and buries it. Now, just so you understand what one bag of gold was, one bag of gold was about seven years of wages. Seven years of wages. So today that would be what? Anywhere between, I don't know, maybe 350000 up to 2 million, something, that range. One bag of gold. So this is a lot of money. This is a lot of money. He didn't say, here's five bucks. He's trusting them with a lot of money. So the one with five goes and does something with it. The one with two goes and does something with it. But the one with one goes and buries it. Goes and buries it. And so the master comes back and says, what have you done with what I've given you? And the one that had five bags of gold doubled it. He multiplied. He came back with 10. The one with two bags of gold multiplied it. He came back with four. And so the, the master looks at them and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into your master's joy. Now that would have been astonishing right there because in that culture, a master would have never told a servant to come and enter into his joy. Yeah. Never. Come partake. Never. That would have never happened. And then, this, and, and then the one with the one bag of gold says, uh, well, look, um, you know, I was, I was kind of scared. And so I went and I buried it. But, but, but don't worry, I have it. Here it is. Here's everything, the, the exact thing you gave me. Here, here it is. Here's your one bag of gold. Wow. Now, now in, the, in, in the parable, the master is not happy. In fact, the master calls this person lazy. And the master actually takes this person and banishes him out. He actually calls him wicked. What? Why? Well, see, at first glance, you might think, oh, this parable is about work, you know, working for your salvation. But, but, but no, 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 don't, don't misunderstand the parable. Because notice this, it's not like the one that came back with 10 bags of gold. The master said, okay, good, you can come in and, and, into my joy. And the one that came back with four, he said, ah, you're almost there, almost. Just get a couple more bags, you almost got it. No, no, no. This, this was fruit because of the relationship that they had with the master. You see what I'm saying? In other words, it's, it's not working for salvation. It's working from salvation. 
In other words, um, as Christians, we don't bear fruit because we hope to be saved one day. We bear fruit because we are saved. You see, you see what I'm saying? See, when I do things for my wife, clean the house or whatever it is, when I, when I do things for my wife, I don't do it because I hope she loves me. I do it because she already loves me. You, you, you see, there's a difference there. There's a difference there. But, but the reason the master calls this one with the one bag of gold that came back, the reason he calls him wicked is because what he's really saying is this, is that you're a false steward. You're a false disciple. You show no fruit for one reason or another. And, we, and, and there's a few reasons that people have on why he did this, you know. But, but the reality is, is he was wolves in sheep's clothing. So what is this telling us about how we should wait for the return of Jesus? Well, by this. Here it is. You ready? Yeah. By considering his assets and not your own. See, vision seven and vision eight are so closely related. And, and oftentimes God is just really pointing a, a painting a portrait, but not just in one chapter, but in, in several chapters. The, the, this is sort of a, a panorama sort of portrait. You see what I'm saying? And it's all connecting. And, and, and so what's happening in seven also connects with what's happening in eight. And, and basically what it is is saying, listen, it, it, how you wait for the master's return is that it can be imminent and it can be far off. But how you also wait for the return of Jesus is by considering his assets and not your own. And th see, this is why we're, we're tired and, and we're frustrated and we're burnt out because God cannot be the source of your strength if the world is the source of your standards. Mm, wow. God cannot be the source of your strength if the world is the source of your standards. Yeah. How do you wait for Jesus? By doing something with what Paul calls the hope that lies within us. After Daniel saw this incredible vision, he didn't say, okay, that's it. I'm just going to seclude myself. I'm going to worry about myself. I'm just going to think about myself. No. He went back. He went back. Because to be called into Christ is also to be sent out by Christ. Not just to, to, to seclude yourself from the darkness of the world and say, you know, who cares about the injustice I see and who cares about the marginalized and the poor and the disadvantaged? Oh, who cares, you know? Who, who cares about those who don't know Christ? As long as I know the truth, as long as I know Christ is real, as long as I have a relationship with God, then that's all that matters. I'm good. You know, Jesus and I, we know each other. We got each other. As long as, you know, we're good, then that's all that really matters, right? Or does your heart break for what God's heart breaks yeah. over? Does your heart rejoice in what God's heart rejoices in? See, Christianity says that, that the problem is not that we want things too much. The problem is, is that we want God too little in relationship to those things. Are you all about your assets or his? Have you, like the one in this parable, and have you entered into his authentic joy or into your stimulated happiness? Well, I think it depends on if you know the hope you're waiting for. 
Number one, how we are waiting for hope. Number two, what is the hope we are waiting for? It's actually all throughout Daniel, isn't it? We see it time and time again where Christ's kingdom uh, and his reign crushes the evil kingdoms and the rulers. And, and even here in chapter 8, it says, uh, but the, the prince of princes, which, which we know is Jesus Christ, will break the evil one. But see, that, that's our hope. But, but actually, our hope is even more than that. Our hope is not just that when you die because of what Jesus Christ has done for you, that you go and live with God. That's part of it. But our hope is resurrection. It's resurrection. What's resurrection? Resurrection is the belief that our souls don't just go off and live in some sort of disembodied existence, but rather that we get a new physical glorified supernatural body and that we also have a, a we also have a, live in a physical universe, but that is healed. We're suffering evil and poverty are gone. There's no other religion that promises that. And why is that important? Well, it's important because then otherwise, if you just believe that, oh, you know, all our hope is is that you're going to go live spiritually somewhere with God in the sky by and by, well, then what that means is you'll have deterministic worldviews and, and, and you'll think, well, really what salvation is is the escape of this world. But actually, that's not what Christianity teaches. It's not about the escape of this world. But it's about the renewing of this world, the restoring of this world, the transformation of this world. And it makes you realize that what happens in this world now, today matters. Justice matters. Morality matters. What kind of hope is it that we're waiting for? It is a hope for the exiled. It is a hope for the homeless. And that changes everything. In other words, the Christian hope is the one that says this, one day we will be home. One day we will be home. Remember the Disney Pixar movie, The Up? Remember that movie, Up? And, and, and in it, for those that are, are, are watching, you'll see, the, you'll see a picture there. But, but in it, you see this old man. And, and, and so what's, happen, what's happening is that uh, these developers are wanting his house. And, and he won't take any amount of money for it. He says, no, it's his house. This is his home. He wants to fight for it. So eventually what he does is he attaches thousands of balloons and makes the whole home float up in the sky, right? How is it we can relate to that? Why can we relate to that? Why do we fight for that? Because we're all looking for home. A place ultimately where we belong, where we can be our true selves, where we feel secure, where there's peace and joy, and where everything just fits. You know, when you're home and it's like, that's your spot. Like, that's where you, it just fits. You know, you just sit there like, that's it. Right? But this is ultimate home. And what Jesus did in an ultimate sense is he came to earth to give us a home. See, right now, all of humanity is exiled. We're, 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 we are in exile. We're homeless. And what Jesus did in ultimate sense was, was he actually ended up becoming homeless for you so that way you can end up being at home with him. This is incredible hope. It's a fantastic hope, but it's also a dangerous hope. It's a dangerous hope. Why? Point number three, why is it a dangerous hope? See, yes, there is a home that we will be in one day. One day we will be home. And yes, there is a hope. 
But how was that made possible? See, what Jesus said is, when he said this, he said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. When he said, I'm going to go and prepare a place, he didn't mean like, I'm just going to pop into heaven real quick and make your bed and pop back. When he said, I'm going to go, what did he mean by go? Where was he going? To the cross. To the cross. That's how he was going and preparing a place for you, by suffering and dying for you. He says, I'm going to the cross. The reason why he doesn't say, if you live a good life, maybe I'll let you come and stay with me, is because I, he says, I'm going to go and secure a place for you. I'm going to go secure a place for you. And so Jesus became homeless. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's a wanderer. And when he died, when he was crucified, the Bible says he was crucified outside of the city, outside of the gate. And did his father embrace him? No. He said, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? You see, he took on our homelessness that we deserve so we can be home. So our hope is that. Our hope is that fact. Our hope is that fact. You say, well, why is it dangerous? Well, because look at what happens with this hope. Look what Daniel did. After he saw this hope, look what he did. He had to go back. He had to go back to the very system that was violent against his faith. He had to go back. Pastor Esau Macaulay said this, that the gospel of Mark, when looking at the resurrection story, is especially striking because the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of Mark conclude with the description that the women were trembling and bewildered. Why? They just saw Jesus resurrected. Why weren't they celebrating and, and, and hopping for joy? It says that they were trembling and they were in fear, that they fled the tomb and they were scared. Why? Why is that true? Well, because what's dangerous, far more dangerous than going back to society with a dead Christ is a live one. It's a live one. And here's why. Because it means that when you go back, it means that you are going back and having to expect hardship. That when you go back, after you have this hope, after you know that Jesus Christ is going to come again, after you know that and you believe it in your heart, now you have to face a world where it's, there's still evil and there's still racism and there's still brokenness and there's still pain and there's still disgust. There's still disappointment and, break, and, break, and heartbreak and cruelty. And yet, you still have to love them. And yet, you still have to forgive. One time, Becca was watching a movie called Hope Floats. I wasn't watching it. Becca was watching it. I don't really know what it's about. I mean, I was kind of glancing a little bit, but she was watching it. But I began to think, you know, hope doesn't float. Hope's an anchor. It's an anchor. And it's an anchor for the storm that comes our way. And this is what Daniel is telling us. Daniel is letting us know that yes, Jesus is going to come again. But until that happens, that as Christians, we have a hard road to face. That we're going to face trial and tribulation. But guess what? As long as you have a hope, then you know that no matter what it is that you're facing, you will be okay. Why? Because I have a hope. I have a hope. 
I may, and no, notice Daniel says, I don't know what the dream is. I don't understand all this. I'm a little confused. But what I do know is I have a hope. I may not know why I was abused, but I have a hope. I may not know why my kids won't serve the Lord, but I have a hope. I may not know why I have this disease, but I have a hope. I may not know why I deal with depression, but I have a hope. I may not know why I have social anxiety, but I have a hope. I wish somebody would say amen. I don't know why my child is handicapped, but I have a hope. I don't know why my parents gave up on me, but I have a hope. I have a hope. And your hope cannot be in your bank account because your bank account cannot hold your hope. It cannot be in politics because politics cannot hold your hope. It cannot be in your spouse or your kids, your education, your notoriety. Those cannot hold your hope. No, 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 because when the very foundations of your life cave in, and if they haven't yet, one day they will, you're going to realize that when you are in disarray and despair, that there's only one anchor that can get you through until all things are restored, until we are home. Yes. And that hope is Jesus. That hope is Jesus. That hope is Jesus. This is the way. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Inspire Churches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.